This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampage Pagan. On the show today, I have Tom Vanderbilt. He wrote a book called Traffic Why We Drive the Way We Do. It is this surprising, enlightening look at the psychology of us human beings behind steering wheels. It's incredible. I had a great time reading it, such a great time, in fact, that I decided I had to call him up and talk to him about traffic. Sure. Uh, hello, my name is Tom Vanderbilt. I'm a writer in Brooklyn, New York, and author, uh, most recently, of You May Also Like, as well as Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. Do me a favor. In your book, you have this wonderful outline of the history of traffic congestion. If you could boil that down into a nutshell for me, that would be great. Well, I mean, basically, as long as we've had cities, we've had issues with how to move the most people around those cities in the most efficient manner. I mean, going back to Caesar, ancient Rome, I mean, we're, uh, you know, it's it's a very uh, complex problem, uh, what economists would call a wicked problem. I mean, you try to solve it one way, and it, you know, some other problem crops up somewhere. So in some ways, we're actually no closer to solving this problem that has existed essentially since the dawn of urbanity. Uh, yeah, all the way back to ancient Rome. Yeah, and, and the problem there, I mean, one problem there, for example, is that uh, the, the presence of so many commercial vehicles during the day was was thought to be causing uh, the congestion. So an easy solution was to pass a law saying that those vehicles could only travel at night, as you see in, in current places like Delhi, India, where truck traffic is restricted to nighttime. Uh, but the problem then they soon found out is that all those commercial vehicles moving around at night caused noise problems, which the citizens then complained about. So this is why I talk about it being a wicked problem. I mean, you sort of squash it down in one area and you've just created a new set of problems. So one of the big takeaways from traffic from your book was and, – and this completely took me by surprise because I was expecting more to do with city design and – road design and flaws in that. But no, traffic is essentially a flaw in human nature. It's not a flaw in city planning. Well, I mean, traffic congestion itself is, uh, I'm not sure I would call it a flaw as much as just a kind of a logical, almost logical outgrowth of the idea that, you know, we want to be around other people. I mean, that's where productivity lies. Uh, You know, uh, if we could all agree to work remotely in far-flung, you know, regions and just talk to each other on Skype the way we are doing now, you know, you would solve the traffic problem. But, you know, there still is this great, uh, you know, promise to to face-to-face interaction. And with that comes density. And with density comes these issues of trying to move the most people around most efficiently. Um, you know, whether the single occupant car is the solution to that, I mean, I, I think not. And that's where you get, that's where you do start to get into the sort of a rational side, you know, there, there are many ways people could, you know, create uh, solutions themselves to the traffic issue. I mean, just, just adding a few passengers to your vehicle. I mean, you could cut traffic in half just by that. Um, I mean, the other, the other great way we ourselves contribute to traffic congestion, of course, is through poor acts of driving. I mean, this is what's called, um, you know, irregular, you know, non-recurring congestion happens because of things like crashes from inattention. And, you know, 90, more than 90% of all crashes are 
based on human factors. There are very few accidents, as I would suggest that, you know, we could really, if we could, you know, stop getting into crashes again, that would, you know, have a huge uh, impact on improving the, the efficiency of, of freeways. But, and this is not to get too far along here, but this is where, you know, the, the self-driving car and, you know, sort of perfectly optimized software might have, um, you know, great impact. I, I love that idea that somehow traffic is a consequence of our need to be close to one another. Yeah, I mean, the, go, going back to, in cities like Los Angeles, going back to the 1920s, they were talking about, you know, well, if we could just create staggered work situations where some people started at 8 a.m., some people started at 10 a.m., some people maybe even started at 12 p.m., and you could you distribute that sort of traffic flow throughout the day, then you, you could, you know, avoid this peak hour congestion, which really, in, in most in many cases, that is the real problem. I mean, there's a, an estimate that the Rand Corporation came up with that 90% of roads in the United States are not congested 90% of the time. It's just this small amount during a certain period that is really what we associate with traffic. Of course, in cities like Los Angeles, you know, people wanted to work, for the reasons I already mentioned, together at the same time. And it, it's just human nature. We, we want to work. People really don't want to work at 3 in the morning if they can help it. Um, and of course, what's also happened, of course, is that you know, those so-called peak hours, uh, and I'm sure this is the case in Kuala Lumpur and, and, and many other places, you know, have have spread. So you're not talking about you know one or two hours of rush hour. You're talking about many hours of rush hour, and that's just another function of how complex traffic has gotten, where you find these you know new sorts of strange traffic flows that aren't just people going back and forth to work. In your book, um, you outline this idea that. Traffic jams after an accident are primarily caused by this notion of us being busybodies, that we want to slow down and see what's going on. And what I was curious was, in your research, did you come across any country in the world where this isn't the case, where people just shut up and move along? I mean, the Germans, <laughs> are the Germans like that? I, I have a feeling that the Germans would be like that. That's a great question. I'm not... I don't know an exact case where, you know, somehow there was data, but I, I mean, I, I know that it is pretty universal from the fact that some Dutch engineers I know emailed me a video that they created. They hired a helicopter and waited for a crash to happen on a highway in the Netherlands. And a crash did happen. And there's sort of a, a truck that's um, kind of tipped over. It's in, in the, in the, in, it's blocking a lane. The police are there. They're forcing people to move over. So on one side of this highway, you know, there's a clear reason why there's congestion. But then there's this big sort of grassy median in between. And on the other side of the highway, and you can see this perfectly on the helicopter, all those other vehicles are slowing at the exact same rate <laughs> as the vehicles in the section where there's an actual physical obstruction. There's no physical obstruction on the other side. It's actually what I refer to as a mental bottleneck. I mean, people are you know just, again – what happened? I, I need to take a look. The person ahead of me took a look. Why shouldn't I take a look? We all just uh, sort of fall in line with that. So, I mean, the one suggestion that was created and actually has been tested was to create so-called, I mean, we, we call this behavior rubbernecking in the United States, but to create so-called anti-rubbernecking screens, which would, you would, a crash happens, the emergency response people would throw up this, um, you know, kind of uh, tarp, essentially, you know, sort of blocking the view. Essentially, uh, uh, nothing to see here, move along. Exactly. And, and this was tried in, in Massachusetts, I was told, and they found that it actually did not help. People were still slowing because they were curious about what that thing was. And perhaps they could even, you know, if they could even peek around the corner and see what 
in, in some ways it almost made it more enticing because you're wondering, well, if you're blocking this thing, you know, so uh, again, it's a wicked problem. But of course, in Asia, we have a completely different problem. So in that when there's an accident, there are people who believe that taking the license plate of the car and buying a lottery ticket using that number will get you lucky. Okay. And it gets even more morbid than that. If someone died in the accident, then it's double the luck and you might win something. So there was a period of time when I swear to God, if you saw an accident, you're driving by, you would see people slow down and they would be writing down the number of the license plate. Wow, this is the first time I'm hearing this. Have you this. never heard um, of that? Okay, no, I thought you might enjoy that, yeah. <laughs> it seems uh, counterintuitive, right? I mean, one might associate that with bad luck. That's uh, what I would have it. thought. I don't know the logic to it. I haven't actually spoken to anyone about where that superstition stems from. Uh, but it's a really common practice over here in Malaysia. It's crazy. Wow, yeah, that's, I guess, a form of what they call magical thinking. But I mean, maybe exactly. the, the thought is that the, all the bad luck has already been exhausted because the person, maybe it's that person is cleansed of bad luck by getting in this misfortune. Uh, I don't know. What does traffic cost us in time and money? I mean, there are figures that are, are put out every year, and it's a bit of an inexact science because, you know, if you, if you estimate what people are spending in congestion, it's sort of, you're sort of stipulating that they have no alternative and that, you know, that their time outside of the car is equally valuable. I mean, it, it's a very messy science. There, there are figures that are out there, and they would vary for each country. But, I mean, you know, it's interesting that you say time or money because that is – the choice. And, and you, you, when you have a, a scarce resource, economic theory states that you can ration that resource by by queuing or by charging. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can, you, right now you could increase the price it costs to get into New York City in a private car. That would probably reduce the congestion for a while. People are paying more money to reduce that congestion. The alternative is if, if you charge less money, you're adding to the Q element. You're just simply asking people to pay more with their time. And people are very, have different responses to this. And some people's time is less valuable than others, according to their own kind of internal calculus. So it does get complicated. And you have these mixed systems where people can actually choose, choose both. I mean, they can actually pay, you know, more for this sort of HOT, high occupancy tolling lane to get somewhere faster, where other people can, you know, sort of choose the slower route. So I think a lot of us are making these calculations uh, on the fly. I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of other costs, though, to essentially sitting in a car for a long period of time. I mean, we're talking about pollution, both inside the vehicle and outside of the vehicle, of course. Um, one's physical and mental health. I've seen studies that, that talk about car commuting as the least satisfying form of transportation, you know, commute that's out there when it's in theory, when it's not going well. And I mean, so they're huge, you know, all sorts of huge costs. And then the question begs is why do so many, why are so, so many people still doing it? And that's a, probably a much more complex answer. I mean, there might be partially habit. There may really be no other choices. People may not have examined the other choices carefully enough, or they're, you know, they can only afford to live in a certain area and that's far from their job. So it's a very, you know, if you, if you go to a sort of highway overpass, and the Los Angeles Times newspaper once did try to do this, they took a photograph of the highway and then tried to contact people that were on that highway through their license plates. And they assured, you know, they're assured that they're 
made sure that it was okay to reveal who they were if they wanted to be interviewed. And they were just trying to get a sense, though, of who, who was in that huge flow of traffic. You know, we look at it, and it's just an anonymous, giant mass of vehicles. But they tried to get everyone's story. Why are you in that traffic? Why are you going where you're going? Is there another way you could go? Do you have to go now? And, you know, the answers were pretty interesting. And, and just to conclude here, I mean, the thing that we do find is that a lot of people do have a lot of flexibility in traffic. When you have an example like some sort of road shutdown, a catastrophic road shutdown, or or some sort of – in New York City, we had a transit strike. So drivers had to – if they wanted to come into the city, they needed to have at least three people in their vehicle. And guess what? People started just lining up at the bridge and they were picking up pa- passengers who they didn't know. <laughs> and so, you know, so people are, you know, people are highly flexible when it comes to this. But, you know, our, our default state is to just rely on habit and what's easy. I mean, we do, you know, we like to optimize around what is easy to do and what seems easy to us. So anything that takes more work, we're not going to do. So anyway, but when, when push comes to shove, we can make pretty dramatic changes in our uh, travel behavior. It's very interesting you say that because I'm always curious about why people leave work or leave home when they do and whether there's any thought or strategy that goes in to your morning commute. I mean, of course, it's it's based on so many different factors. It's based on when your kid has to go to school and what time you need to be in your office. And Yeah, I guess it just speaks to the sense that, again, you know, traffic is just – a set of patterns that are are generally very predictable. I mean, you know, organized around, like you say, the school run or something. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that though, because that this is one area where, in the United States at least, this has made things like carpooling, which would be a great solution to your kind of standard commute to work, commute back home. That's a great solution for that pattern. But when people begin to complicate their travel patterns by having to pick up children, having to go run errands, having to take someone else to, to a class or something like that. That that makes this sort of, they call it trip chaining, that makes this carpooling very difficult because whose who's schedules are going to sync up exactly that way. Um, the one area where we have made, you know, at least some improvement, at least knowing when a more optimal time to travel would theoretically be, even if we can't actually do that, is the emergence of basically the smartphone in the car because you know it's now it's now become a two-way signaling device a kind of traffic probe we, we are all you know we can all benefit from each other's driving in a way by you know I, I just wrote a blog post comparing it to in network science there's something called ant colony optimization people talk about how the way ants travel can be used as a, you know the algorithm derived from that can be used in all sorts of interesting ways. I mean, from bridge engineering to um, trying to you know come up with classic network uh, solutions like the traveling salesman problem. But ants, ants are efficiently, wonderfully efficient. So, um, like a service, an app like Waze, uh, which I know is used in Malaysia, is um, you know every time you drive down a road, you're sending sort of a set of electronic signals, kind of like the way ants do on trails. They leave a little deposit of pheromone, and the next ant comes along, and if there's enough pheromone on that trail, they think they know that it's a good trail. So the ants are sending signals to everyone behind them, saying, "Hey, this is the way. This is the best way to go." And when a way when a, when, a, when, a, when a route turns out to not be so great, you know the amount of pheromone starts to drop off, and ants are uninterested. So. You know, all of us now are driving around, and, and I've become really dependent upon these apps. And, so, and sometimes you're still essentially stuck, but even even knowing the exact amount of time you're going to be stuck for can be very useful and really helps 
alleviate the burden of uh, on your psychology, basically, because I mean, cues. It, much research has gotten into this. Cues tend to drive us crazy, but what really drives us crazy are cues in which we do not know the reason for the cue, and we do not know how long we're going to wait in the cue. As soon as you know how long, you can sort of mentally, you know, prepare for that a little bit at least. And uh, so th- th- that's one way that technology is making this long, you know, standing problem, if not solvable, at least more manageable. Is there a breakdown between how much of traffic congestion is because of us and how much of it is just because of poor planning? In the sense that the old fashioned approach to solving traffic is build more roads, highways, widen them, congestion pricing, make it impossible to find parking inside the city, all of these little things, right? Improve public transport, et cetera, et cetera. But that still doesn't solve the human problem. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, I guess you're talking about two different things, the supply side and the demand side. And this is where, I mean, the problem is, is that in a city like New York, you cannot expand road capacity. I mean, it it is built out. I mean, there are... And in some ways, it would it would be impossible to even try to accommodate an entire. Let's just imagine that the entire uh, amount of people who work in the central business district in Manhattan wanted to commute to Manhattan in a private single single occupancy vehicle. There was once a analysis done that examined the Brooklyn Bridge, which is uh, three lanes in each direction. They said that you know if everyone wanted to drive, uh, they would have to be expanded in the order of a thousand lanes. I mean, this is wow. This is just, you know, it, it, so only a fraction of people are actually you know, doing it that way and it's still causing trouble. So you know, we just have to be much more creative about, about trying to manage the demand. If, if you can't expand the supply, you have to manage the demand and that's where you get into the the arguments like pricing or trying to have people make fewer trips or finding alternative ways for people to get together or, you know, and I mean, the range of, of solutions here that have been tried is pretty impressive or, or that are sort of on the books or at least theoretically on the books. I mean, everything from the, uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the renderings of this bus in China that actually yes, is sort of a, above you, traffic. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in Mexico City, they've built a, a double-decker highway. They've, they, the one highway got uh, congested, so they just added another deck. It's very expensive. Uh, in places like Bogota and other cities that I've been in, uh, the traffic that is coming inbound into the city in the morning uh, is given priority. So they'll get four lanes, including traffic going the other way. And then during the outbound flow at evening – all those lanes reverse, sort of reversible lanes. So you you just kind of, you know, temporarily modify the city to accommodate the traffic flow. So there's, you know, all kinds of interesting uh, suggestions that have been tried. And again, this is why I talk about it being a wicked problem. I mean, no single solution is going to fix the problem. And in, indeed, some of the solutions may just actually create uh, more problems. So it, it's really, it really would, it's really going to take an aggressive suite of strategies, you know, talking about all, all kinds of things, planning, design, demand, demographics, um, the alternative, the, the presence of many robust alternatives like subways, bike lanes, et cetera, et cetera, and to, to begin to chip away at this. And lastly, I mean, the, the thing that kind of haunts you here is that, you know, when you do finally get all those things and the roads are much emptier, then you've just made them that much more desirable to people to, to get back on those roads. So that's where, you know, 
you then have to get pricing again. So it, it, again, the more desirable you make it, the more people will, will jump on. It's it's the, the, the tragedy of the commons uh, in a sense. Yeah, or, or you could do what Singapore does and make buying a car prohibitively expensive. Just, yeah, just another very creative solution. Um, you can restrict the, the license plate of the car that can drive in. I mean, there's there's people have tried you know all kinds of things. Um, what I, I, I do own a car and I live in New York city and it's a, it's a bit unusual to be a car owner. It's puts one in the minority, but the, the thing I like about New York city is that, you know, I have a set of choices that are all very good. I mean, I, the, the car is very often the, the worst choice, so it just stays parked, but there are many other, you know, but I do like having a choice. Many people in the world, you know, are essentially kind of stuck in, in their car, um, which is not, you know, rational. For, for me, the car is a one solution that only during certain times and places does it actually make sense. Yeah. Uh, no, no, very good. So it's not going to be an app then, Tom? That will solve traffic. Uh, <laughs> an app? An app is not going to solve all our problems, is it? Well, that person will make a lot of money, uh, you know, that, that developer. <laughs> that was Tom Vanderbilt. Check out his book, Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. It is a remarkable read about a subject we are all far too familiar with. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.